As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. A lot of old movies and television shows like to portray the life of sailors throughout the 18th and 19th centuries as a carefree and adventurous lifestyle, full of exploration and mystery out on the high seas. But in truth, life on the ocean was actually pretty terrible for most people, all the way up through the early 20th century. Treacherous waters, fierce storms, disease... And the constant threat of violence often added up to one of the most dangerous occupations you could have. A year at sea meant living on nothing but salted beef and bug-infested biscuits. What little sleep you got was had by squeezing into cramped quarters along with dozens of your fellow sailors. Who all reeked of sweat, urine, and tobacco juice. Illness was common among the men. It wasn't uncommon to spend your nights squeezing oozing boils or ripping broken teeth out of rotten gums. The term hellship was often used by sailors forced to work under such inhumane conditions. Morale was always so low on these long voyages that mutiny remained a constant threat. Thus, it actually became against the law for a sailor to disobey the captain's orders. A captain could beat or imprison an unruly crew member with impunity. Back in 1886, the United States Supreme Court ruled that the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery did not actually apply to sailors. Meaning, even by the early 1900s, your average sailor could be treated just as viciously as any formerly enslaved person would have been. This also meant that a greedy ship's captain could work his men mercilessly, allowing them just barely enough food and rest to keep the ship going never allowing anything to cut into the ship owner's profits. But for some sailors back in the port of Grays Harbor in the early 20th century, as bad as life on the ship could be, things could get even worse once they reached their destination. When a merchant ship pulled into the harbor, a handful of skiffs from Whitehall would begin to converge on the vessel. The men on these smaller boats tossed out ropes and boat hooks, attaching themselves to the merchant ship. These men all offered the same things, the promise of liquor, good food, and the comfort of a warm bed with the first women these men would have seen in a year. Many of these sailors jumped at the chance, although a few of the more cautious ones were often coaxed into accepting these offers at gunpoint when nothing else would work. From there, these men were taken to a particular saloon along the edge of shore. And according to legend, this was where they were introduced to a union organizer named Billy Gall. This saloon stood on pilings over the harbor. There, often these men were given cheap whiskey or brandy that was laced with opium. The drugs and the whiskey were enough to knock a man out. Or at least leave them so unsteady on their feet and blurry-eyed, they were easy to handle. After that, Billy Gall would assess these men and decide what to do with them. Oftentimes it's said that Gaul would guide the drunken men to the back of the bar, leading them to a trap door in the floor. Gaul could then press a lever, 
opening the trapdoor and dropping the nearly unconscious sailor down to a rowboat floating beneath the saloon. An accomplice down in the rowboat would then strip the man of any money or valuables he had in his pockets, and from there he would then be ferried over to one of the anchored schooners, who were ready and waiting for a fresh crew. Days later, the unconscious man would awaken only to realize he had been taken back to sea against his will. This was a practice that had earned a particularly notorious nickname based on legends of men being abducted and forced to sail against their will from San Francisco to China. This was the practice known as being Shanghaied. Shanghaiing was often seen as the only way for cargo ships to find a crew. Conditions on board such long voyages were so deplorable it was often nearly impossible to get willing participants to take on such a dangerous trip. When a sailor signed onto a ship, he received two months' salary in advance, although at the same time he was forced to outfit himself before boarding the ship. And of course, every shopkeeper in the neighborhood knew this well enough to jack up their prices to absurd levels. These same shopkeepers would then pay kickbacks to the captains. The sailor wouldn't receive the remainder of his pay until the voyage was complete. And if he attempted to desert the ship at any time, his entire pay would be forfeited. Billy Gall was not only a labor organizer, but also what was known as a crimp, someone who could procure the crew needed for a long voyage, often by any means necessary. But the history books would also tell us that Billy Gall would go far beyond just shanghaiing unwilling sailors and collecting a bounty for each man. In fact, the name Billy Gall has gone down in history as being one of the most prolific serial killers the U.S. has ever known. With some estimates claiming the man murdered anywhere from between 40 to as many as 250 men between 1903 to 1910. But how much of that is true? There are some historians who believe Billy Gall wasn't quite the monster history has made him out to be. And that maybe, just maybe, Billy Gall was framed. I'm Nate Hale, coming to you live from Davy Jones's locker and really hating the smell of his gym socks. And this is The Conspirators. tell the story of Billy Gall, you first need to hear the most commonly told version of events, before we begin to question them. Little is known about Gall's early life. We think he was born in Germany on or around February 6, 1873. He carried with him a German accent he spoke with throughout his life. According to the most popular tellings of his story, Gall fled Germany after being suspected of murdering a man. After fleeing Germany, Billy made his way to Australia. From Australia, he boarded a ship bound for Alaska, where he got involved in a mining venture with a partner. But after that partner turned up mysteriously dead, Billy Gall became the prime suspect in his murder. But Gall insisted to authorities he had nothing to do with the man's death, and that it was either an accident or self-defense, depending on which version of the story you heard. There are plenty of rumors about Billy Gall's early life that are difficult to verify. One story claims that he once ate a man to survive during a blizzard near Whitehorse in the Yukon Territory. 
So the story goes that after finally leaving the Yukon, Billy settled down in Montana for a couple years where he married a woman, had a child with her, then abruptly abandoned her to go seek his fortune in San Francisco. Billy Gall arrived in San Francisco right around the turn of the 20th century, at a time when the city was bustling. The gold rush that had begun 40 years earlier had caused the once tiny village of under 1,000 people to explode in population of more than 300,000 by the time Gall arrived. But with all those people and all that money flowing from the gold and shipping industries, this also meant a vast criminal underworld had also grown up within the city. The most dangerous neighborhood in San Francisco back then was in the Barbary Coast, a nine-block area most of which can be found in modern-day Chinatown. The police back then didn't mess around either. Along with nightsticks and pistols, the officers were also armed with foot-long swords meant for chopping off hands of any criminal foolish enough to try to spar with them. There was even at least one report of a man getting his head cut clean off during a scuffle with an officer. It's believed that during the late 19th century, there were nearly two dozen different criminal gangs operating in the Barbary Coast. These gangs were known for a vast array of crimes, including robbery, rape, kidnapping, and murder. On top of all that, the shipping industry gained a reputation as a terrible and dangerous occupation. In 1885, 300 sailors organized along the lumber wharves on Folsom Street. These men formed a labor union called the Sailors' Union of the Pacific, or SUP. The following year, the SUP staged their first strike, but this ended badly. Ship owners fought back by crewing their ships with a bunch of strike breakers who violently lashed out at the men. After that, they blackballed the remaining union members. Despite the strong-arm tactics employed by the shipping owners, the SUP continued to grow its ranks. This included Billy Gall. He gained a reputation as someone who would do whatever it took to strengthen the union. On one occasion, he heard of a ship in the harbor filled with non-union sailors. Billy's solution to this problem was to get on board by befriending one of the crewmen. Then he immediately took his friend hostage along with all the other crewmen. He forced them onto a launch and took his captives to the union hall where they were beaten mercilessly by union members. These sort of strong-arm tactics worked well with Billy in San Francisco. But over time, he realized he was just one small fish in a very large pond. He knew he had a better chance of growing his wealth and influence if he moved to a smaller city than San Francisco. Most of the lumber that had built San Francisco during its construction boom had come from the smaller shipping town of Aberdeen, Washington. Billy saw this town of 10,000 as being just the right place for an ambitious individual such as himself. By 1903, Billy had established himself in Aberdeen as a delegate for the Sailors' Union. Down along Gray's Harbor, many businesses were built up on pilings jutting out over the water. This allowed sailors to pull up in their boats and spend money at one of the two dozen bars or other establishments. Billy met a man named Lars Kingstad, and the two of them opened a cigar store on South F Street. Soon after, he commandeered the Grand Saloon down the street. This was where he learned the art of shanghaiing unwitting sailors by getting them drunk then carrying their unconscious bodies to waiting ships. At the same time, Billy's reputation in the Union only grew and grew. He not only became one of the SUP's main representatives in Aberdeen, but he also became known as someone the sailors could trust. He became the sailors' banker, among other things. This meant he was trusted with holding onto their money while the men were away at sea, 
paying it out in small amounts while they were in port. One day, Billy Gall wandered into a saloon and got very drunk. He made a pass at one of the pretty dance hall girls who turned around and punched Billy in the jaw, knocking him down. When he was down on the ground, she kicked him savagely in the ribs. If she'd been a man, Billy likely would have killed her. But instead, he ended up marrying her. This woman's name was Bessie Hager. She became the love of Billy's life. Bessie was allegedly a cousin of the legendary outlaws Frank and Jesse James. This was something Billy took special pride in and would often brag about, how he had married into the James family, and that he would one day be just as notorious as they were. Over time, so the legend goes, Billy Gall would assemble his own gang, the members of which included fellow sailors A.W. Jacobson, John Hoffman, John Klingenberg, Charles Hatberg, and Loritz Jensen, all of whom would play major roles in Billy's rise and downfall. Billy's gang grew especially loyal toward him. Once, when Billy Gall was accused of stealing some automobile blankets, Charles Hatberg stepped in and told police it was he who had taken them. This, despite the fact the blankets were found in a shack belonging to Billy. But Billy's criminal activities didn't stop with kidnapping and robbery. Some of the men Billy robbed, he flat out murdered. So the story goes, he would often brazenly shoot or beat a man to death inside his saloon then dumped their body into Gray's Harbor through the trapdoor in the floor. He would then sometimes take steps to dispose of the bodies by having one of his men carry their remains out into the harbor by boat. But at the same time, Billy was also described as someone who was pretty open about his ability to get away with murder. He once bragged that they shot a non-union scab with his Winchester from his office window. On another occasion, he forced four non-Union sailors at gunpoint out into the bay and dumped them off on a minuscule patch of land called Moon Island at low tide. Then he simply sailed away and left them to drown as the tide came in. Over time, Grays Harbor gained such a dangerous reputation that it grew to have a new nickname, the Port of Missing Men. If you Google the name Billy Gall, you'll find him described as one of, if not the most prolific serial killer in American history. His name is tied to anywhere from 40 to over 250 murders between 1903 to 1910. He's been called a brutal thug, a criminal mastermind, and a sadistic killer. But is any of that actually true? Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Aaron Goings is the chair of the history department at St. Martin's University in Lacey, Washington. And he grew up hearing horror stories about the ghoul of Grays Harbor. But after Goings began to research the story of Billy Gall, he began to realize that a lot of things just didn't add up. The further Goings dug, the more he came to believe that the history books had it all wrong. And that Billy Gall was framed. There were actually very few things Goings could corroborate about Billy Gall's history. From the story of him being suspected of murder in Germany to the tales from committing cannibalism on the Yukon, 
Much of it seemed based on hearsay. Even the basic description of Billy Gall was exaggerated over the years. Most modern depictions of Gall describe him as a hulking giant of a man, towering over others and intimidating them with his massive physique. But Goings learned from official records that Gall was actually fairly average height and weight for the day, and that the tales of his mythic strength were just more padding to build the monster's legend. One thing Goings was able to confirm was that Billy Gall did grow up working as a sailor on the floating sweatshops that were the cargo ships from the early 20th century. And he came to resent the deplorable conditions that he and his fellow sailors were forced to work under, causing him to become a driving force in the growing labor movement. Billy personally witnessed and even endured many of the beatings and other terrible ways sailors were treated. Each year, the red record cataloging these atrocities grew ever longer. One story tells of a sailor who was stomped to death by his ship's captain. Another tells of a man who was bound and gagged just for singing. According to Aaron Goings, Billy Gall became an advocate for sailors' rights and for other dock workers as well. Goings claims Gall was actually more of a working-class hero than a depraved lunatic. Union membership was already growing by the time Billy Gall moved to the town of Aberdeen, Washington, which was then the largest port for shipping lumber in the world. Billy became the primary delegate of the Union for Aberdeen. Even Billy's wife Bessie would show her support for the Union by going out in public dressed in a sailor suit and cap. Billy would often patrol the docks looking for missing workers, and he was the man people would go to in order to arrange funerals for dead sailors and would send their money to their families. He even arranged public parades in their honor. He studied law and became an advocate for sailors' rights. In particular, he would help out immigrants who had difficulty speaking the language and navigating the American legal system. Mind you, this level of advocacy wasn't universal for Billy Gall. Billy only advocated for white immigrants, not Chinese. For decades, there had been a concerted effort to prevent the Chinese from finding work in America. This after Chinese laborers effectively built the Western Railroad Line. Many communities came up with laws prohibiting Chinese laborers from taking jobs along the docks that the powers that be felt should go to white workers. Then came along the Chinese Exclusion Act that prevented any more Chinese immigrants from emigrating to America. Although Billy Gall certainly went along with all that anti-Chinese xenophobia, he still worked tirelessly to become a champion of other workers throughout the Port of Aberdeen. He wrote editorials calling out the terrible working conditions aboard the ships. He demanded the wealthy ship owners take action to raise wages and improve working conditions. As a result, the wealthy elites came to despise Billy Gall. Since most of the local newspapers back then were in the pockets of the wealthy business owners from Aberdeen, they would come to publish their own editorials describing Billy Gall as a violent thug, a pirate, and an anarchist. That last description was particularly important since many states had strict laws aimed at anarchists. Besides the newspaper editorials, the wealthy business owners who lived in gigantic mansions along the outskirts of town had other weapons in their arsenal to fight back against the unions. They backed anti-union politicians and they hired strike-breaking thugs to physically battle the union members on the streets. Then on April 18, 1906, something happened that sent shockwaves both literal and figural throughout the country. An estimated 7.9 magnitude earthquake struck the city of San Francisco. 
More than 3,000 people died as a result and over 80% of the city was destroyed in a matter of minutes. Practically any building that managed to remain standing after the ground stopped shaking almost certainly burnt to the ground after all the ruptured gas pipes throughout the city ignited. But in all that tragedy and destruction, the business owners in Aberdeen saw tremendous opportunity. Aberdeen had been the location where all the lumber came from the first time San Francisco was built, and the owners knew it was the obvious choice this time around as well. But the Sailors Union also realized that all the needed manpower for such an undertaking provided them an opportunity as well. They demanded higher wages and better working conditions for all the extra work they would be doing. But the wealthy shipping owners outright refused to negotiate. After that, Billy Gall and other members of the Sailors Union organized a massive strike. They even managed to enlist the support of the local longshoremen, who stood alongside them on the picket lines. The business owners responded by hiring hundreds of strike-breaking thugs to go in and attack the strikers. The police chief even gave these strike-breakers some air of legitimacy by deputizing them as special police officers. After that, Billy Gall decided he was going to have to fight fire with fire. He began leading armed raids on ships crewed by scab workers. On one occasion, he even got into a gunfight with a man named William B. Mack, manager of the largest local lumber firm, the S.E. Slade Lumber Company. Mack happened to be on board one of the ships Billy raided and ended up exchanging gunfire with Billy. Neither man was injured, but Mack held a grudge against Billy for a long time after. Billy's raids proved to be both extremely costly to the shipping owners as well as highly effective toward their end goals. Pretty soon, Billy and the other union members came to control the docks. Newspaper editorials howled at the thugs they described calling the shots down at the docks. One newspaper editorial that ran during this time described these men as subhuman. By early fall 1906, the owners had no choice but to come to the bargaining table. They finally agreed to raise wages and improve some of the working conditions. And with that, the strike was over. But Billy Gall's work as a man of the people was just getting started. Billy had proven that a small group of society's lowest classes could stand up to the wealthy elites and force them to change. He went on to form a new group known as the Grays Harbor Waterfront Federation. This was a group of sailors, longshoremen, teamsters, and other dock workers. Billy was elected the group's president. Over the next few years, tensions only grew between the wealthy elites and the labor unions. In 1909, the Seattle branch of one of the largest shipping firms threatened to take their business elsewhere unless the city did something about Billy Gall. A citizens' committee was formed in Aberdeen to combat the labor union, and Billy Gall in particular. These citizens' committees had formed in many other cities throughout the country and whose members were actually largely wealthy business owners. The Aberdeen Citizens' Committee's first order of business was to back the election of a prominent anti-union businessman named Edmund Burke Ben to become the city's new mayor. Edmund Ben hated Billy Gall and installed a new chief of police named George Dean to take care of the problem. From there, they also hired the services of the Thiel Detective Agency. The Thiels were an offshoot of the legendary Pinkerton Detective Agency, and the Pinkertons had a long history of union busting. There was one occasion where a group of 300 Pinkertons were sent in to bust some heads at a steel plant and ended up killing 10 people. The Thiel Agency was started by a former Pinkerton named George Thiel in 1837, and he brought to his new agency that same hard-nosed attitude towards the unions. 
In Aberdeen, Thiel began sending out spies to infiltrate labor unions and to begin spreading nasty rumors about union members, including Billy Gall. In the summer of 1909, a criminal charge was brought against Billy by an unnamed prominent citizen that Billy had stolen his bicycle. The main problem was that it was Billy's bike. The charges were quickly dropped. Later on, Billy was accused of stealing some clothes, and once again, he was found not guilty. When questioned by reporters about these flimsy charges, Billy told them there were people looking to drag him down out of sheer spite. But Billy didn't know just how far these people would really go. There was a Theo spy named Patty McHugh who came forward with the rumor that Billy Gall had murdered a man named Charles Hatberg. Hatberg had been a former roommate of Billy's and one of his closest friends. According to Patty McHugh, the two men had gotten into an argument and Billy had shot Hatberg, dumping his body in the river. The police chief sent his men out in boats looking for Hatberg's body around where McHugh said Billy dumped the corpse, but at first they couldn't find it. Weeks later, on a chilly morning in February 1910, a couple of brothers named Otto and Paul Smith spotted a bloated corpse floating in the water. When the men rode over to the corpse, they found two bullet holes in the victim's skull as they lifted the decaying remains into their boat. They nearly flipped over their tiny boat in the process as well, because they discovered the reason the man hadn't drifted away with the current was because the body had an anchor tied to it. The body was taken to the local coroner's office, and right away there were officials that were ready to attest that this was indeed the corpse of Charles Hatberg. This was particularly surprising if you considered this was a bloated corpse that had been in the river for weeks. Decomposition, water damage, and attacks by scavengers, including fish and birds, would normally render most bodies difficult, if not impossible, to identify. When news began to spread that the authorities were ready to declare this was Hatberg and that Billy Gall was going down for his murder, an angry mob forced their way into the coroner's office demanding to see the body for themselves. These men were all sailors, many of whom knew Hatberg personally from having worked with him. They all took one look at the bloated corpse and said, that's not Hatberg. Billy Gall himself demanded to see the body but was denied. The mayor of Aberdeen, Edmund Benn, was allowed to view the body and he decreed the body to be that of Charles Hatberg despite never having met the man. That identification was good enough for the authorities and they promptly arrested Billy Gall for Charles Hatberg's murder. That very same day, the Aberdeen newspaper The Daily World began publishing articles that not only described Billy Gall as guilty of Hatberg's murder, but as also being a suspect in the murder of dozens of other bodies that were routinely found floating in Grays Harbor. From there, the story just built and built. Rumors began spreading of Billy's violent past before he came to Aberdeen. Mind you, not all the local newspapers were so quick to rush to judgment. One paper did run an editorial in Billy's defense, but... It was too little, too late at that point. The narrative had already taken on a life of its own, and that narrative declared that Billy Gall was the ghoul of Gray's Harbor. At first, Billy thought he could get out of this predicament as easily as he had with the spurious charges of bicycle theft or stealing clothes. He demanded to be given the third degree by his jailers and said he could prove his innocence in five minutes. Meanwhile, the Thiel Detective Agency began looking for a corroborating witness besides Patty McHugh, who would swear in court that Billy murdered Charles Hatberg. They began looking for an alleged accomplice named John Klingenberg. The Thiels managed to find Klingenberg working in a lumber ship down in Mexico. It was none other than William B. Mack, the manager Billy had once exchanged gunfire with, 
who sent a special request to the Mexican authorities to Shanghai Klingenberg and send him back to Washington. Klingenberg was snatched, drugged, tied up, then carried back at a boat to Aberdeen. Once he was there, Klingenberg was denied a lawyer and was instead taken to a hotel room where he was interrogated by a private citizen. It's believed this was likely either Patty McHugh or possibly William B. Mack. Whoever it was and whatever was done to Klingenberg in that hotel room, we can only speculate. But once it was over, the authorities emerged from that hotel room with a signed confession that accused Billy Gall of murder and of Klingenberg helping take care of the human remains. On top of all that, Billy also began to be accused of killing a local cigar store owner who had disappeared, in addition to all the rumors that he was responsible for the other members of the so-called floater fleet. Billy tried his best to defend himself in court. He swore he had never killed anyone in his life, and that Charles Hatberg was one of his closest and dearest friends, and he would never harm a hair on the man's head. He also told the courts that he knew for a fact the body they found wasn't Hatberg because his friend had informed him that he was moving to Alaska looking for work. Billy's lawyers tried to stage a defense, claiming this was all just another strike-breaking tactic. But things were not in Billy's favor during the trial. Not only had the court of public opinion turned against him with all the terrible rumors and newspaper editorials describing him as a monster, the police also made the rather difficult-to-believe claim that they had discovered the murder weapons floating next to the body. Guns that could be tied to Billy. But this didn't make a lot of sense for multiple reasons. For one, there's no reason the current would have taken both the body and the guns in the same direction and kept them right next to one another. And for another, the guns that were found were in pristine condition. Whereas they should have gone rusty considering they had been in the water for up to six weeks after the murder. The jury in Billy's trial weren't exactly a jury of his peers either. Washington state law at the time mandated that only men who paid property taxes could be jurors. Meaning only property owners could serve which meant most of the members of this jury hadn't come from the poor working class like Billy. Ultimately, Billy Gall was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to hard labor for the rest of his life in the state penitentiary. Years later, he was transferred to an asylum where he died on March 3, 1927. Upon hearing the verdict, local newspapers declared this an end to the long nightmare the city of Aberdeen had endured, as this monster who had once walked among them was now off the street and could no longer prey on the innocent. But one thing that remained underreported following Billy Gall's conviction was that despite Gall being sent away for life, floaters kept showing up in Gray's Harbor. In fact, so many bodies continued to turn up in the harbor that historian Aaron Goings makes a strong case in his book about Billy Gall that there never was any serial killer in Aberdeen. The fact is, back in the early 1900s, Gray's Harbor was a pretty dangerous place to live. There was the constant threat of violence from the thriving criminal element, which undoubtedly accounts for some of the deaths. There were indeed some saloon owners who acted similarly to the story that I told you earlier about Billy, in which they would drug, rob, and murder unsuspecting sailors at port. But Billy Gall likely wasn't one of them. Many other deaths can be attributed to accidents and misadventures. Just a reminder, back then, the shipping industry wasn't particularly interested in worker safety, only speed and making sure profits climbed. This often resulted in some nasty accidents as men loaded and unloaded lumber. In addition, keep in mind the docks back then had no real lighting of any kind and could be quite dangerous to navigate at night, 
especially if one were wandering out there drunk. Billy Gall actually wrote newspaper editorials warning about the poor lighting and treacherous conditions along the docks on more than one occasion. But those warnings went unheeded. So in the end, instead of being remembered as a man of the people, the great tragedy of the story of Billy Gall is that he has gone down in history to be forever remembered as the ghoul of Gray's Harbor. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have a couple of new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you so much to Simone and Stephanie for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder that patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. Another great way you can help support the show is to give us a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in all the podcast charts and helps spread the love to more people. You can find us on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can list our entire back catalog of shows. I also encourage you to follow us along on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. Feel free to follow us and even drop us a line to let us know how we're doing. You can even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.